Trigger warning. This episode contains adult content and may be distressing for some listeners. Pride Across the Ages is a collaborative project to amplify and celebrate the voices of LGBTIQA living in central Victoria. All episodes were recorded on Jar Jar land and respectfully recognise that First Nations sovereignty was never ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. My name is Jeremy and I was born in Frankston, uh, but now I live in Castlemaine and I was born in 1981. Uh, I'm a queer bisexual man who's also a man of transgender experience. My childhood was a bit of a mixed bag. My family moved a few times. My parents are still together and I have two younger sisters. I was born in Frankston, but then we relocated to Ballarat and my dad built a house there and he worked for telecom. He was a linesman and that's where my two sisters were born. And I started primary school there. I went to Ross Creek Primary School. Later on, I've grown up to actually bump into a few people that I know that also went to that primary school, which I was so surprised because it's such a small country bush primary school. But after prep, we then moved to Papua New Guinea and my dad got a job there and my mum worked for a senator and I went to an international primary school and lived in kind of like an expat community really for a few years until we moved back to Australia. I didn't really have that many memories before moving to Papua New Guinea, just a couple. So when when we moved to Australia, it sort of felt like we were immigrants because I didn't have any concept of what the place was really. And I was a bit shocked at how obsessed everyone was with brand names. (laughs) In the 90s, everyone's like, especially if you have a a Bogan background like myself, Everyone was obsessed with Ripkill and Billabong and Hot Tuna and 100% Mambo and the kids would draw the logos in school and I just was looking around everyone going, why are you so obsessed about this? But I guess that was capitalism. I liked living in Papua New Guinea because it was beautiful weather and it was an interesting jungle and when we had weekends away we would go to beautiful tropical paradise beaches. But it was also a difficult upbringing. It was a very violent place. I remember going to school, laying down in the back of a ute, and then we would pull up at the lights and I would pop my head up and look across and then there was a a ute full of guys with guns off to whatever was going on there. And I should really look into it more, but I think there's just a lot of political unrest. And people used to call them the rebels. They actually, that's what they were referred to. But I think they were probably just people that were independence fighters or freedom fighters because for some reason, the senator that my mum worked for was an Australian white man. So within their government and parliamentary system, colonisation had gone over there. Uh, And somehow their parliamentary system was able to have people that weren't locals. So I'm sure there was a lot of corruption and that's probably what led to some of the political unrest. All of the expat white people, New Zealanders, English people, Americans and Australians living in a gated community compound talking about the rebels, but actually there are locals who probably were fighting for their rights. I've grown up and met a lot of other kids my at my age at the time who had parents who had lived there or an uncle that lived there and a lot of them were either public service workers utilities or prison 
that sort of work. So pretty intense. I always felt, and I still always feel a little bit like I'm more of an individual rather than one of a crowd. So I did, I've changed primary school three times and changed countries and locations where I could play around with my identity when I moved, which was really helpful being a trans person because I felt like I was a little boy as a kid. And uh, growing up in the 80s, I had a little 80s spiky haircut, kind of like a mini guy out of bros. <laughs> we only had, we had a wooden TV, one of those old wooden TVs with legs. And my only connection to Australian culture or pop culture was through Hey Hey It's Saturday and Smash Hits. So I always watched the video clips in the morning and that's how I got access to music. Because weirdly, even though uh, my family are not in a cult or anything, we had no sense of culture in our house. There was just a TV. There were no books. There was no music. There wasn't even any artwork. It was really strange. So I was obsessed with making sure I could watch the video clips and I remember the B-52's Love Shack song and I loved it and I turned the uh, dial up so loud because I was home alone and I opened the front door and I went out the house dancing and dancing in front of the house at the compound. <laughs> Someone came over and said is that your TV playing? I said yes and they said you better turn that down you're going to break it. <laughs> I mean I feel like when I moved to Australia it was challenging for me because that was around the time when I realised kids were being heavily socialised into boys or girls and my ability to be ambiguous around my gender presentation had been taken away from me. In Papua New Guinea, the the uniform was gender neutral. Um, I could wear shorts and a t-shirt and I had short hair and I'd run around and meet lots of different people at the school and introduce myself as my second name, which is Peter. But when we moved back to Frankston... I didn't really have that level of exploration or anonymity anymore to be gender ambiguous and that was challenging. My sisters are very feminine so I was sort of labelled the tomboy even though I did actually vocalise a number of times in my childhood that I wanted to be a boy and that I was a boy. It wasn't a concept that anyone had any understanding of in the in the 80s and 90s and it would have been seen as an alarming thing for a kid to say so it wasn't really affirmed or celebrated it was more I had to repress it and ignore it until I was older so we moved back to Frankston there was an old drive-in in Frankston but they must have oh closed it and destroyed it and an A.V. Jennings estate popped up and my parents bought a house there. So it was just a really simple house and a new estate, but we were walking distance to the primary school and the high school and, and then entered my teens and the Frankston community, which was all about boys playing football and girls loving the boys that play football. <laughs> and if you didn't fall into those two binaries, then you're either a bit of a nerd or a dork or something. And I was probably one of them. <laughs> I ended up actually playing basketball. I, th- I, I wanted to play sport and my mum said no in the beginning, but then I was playing with the basketball outside and I saw the moment where she thought about how she had said no and then she came back and said, do you still want to play? And I said yes. And that kind of changed my family's life really because I showed interest in sport then she became interested in sport she became the team coach my sisters ended up playing me and the middle sister both played representative basketball Um, I toured to America when I was 15 and played and I got the most valuable or the most outstanding player in the whole club and then I was drafted from representative basketball into even better basketball I can't remember how they referred to it and I could either play for the Dandenong Rangers or the Melbourne Tigers and I ended up playing for the Melbourne Tigers but that was hard work because my dad would be driving 
me around Victoria to play games on a Friday night and then he'd have to also drive me to Albert Park on Sunday morning for 8am training. That's like rough. And I had gone from playing centre, being the tall person in the team, to point guard, being the shortest person in the team. So I think they were definitely selecting people on skill and height. And If I had a stuck at it, I probably would have had a career, a professional basketball career. I kept playing after 17. I also, my first job was a basketball referee. So when I was 14 and nine months, when you could legally get a job, I, I got a job as a basketball referee. It was pretty good pay. And I just loved basketball. But I stopped playing representative basketball at 17 because around that time I also started to get a group of friends and we would go out partying and started drinking a little bit early. <laughs> and that kind of interfered with this Friday night, game night, and then Sunday morning training. And I, I also felt like it wasn't fun anymore. Like I didn't have a direct relationship with the team teammates so without that sense of community didn't feel like a together thing just felt like another hard thing that I was pushing through by myself it didn't feel fun anymore you know it may have also been related to my gender identity I don't know I can't say that for sure though I just got bullied a lot actually as a kid bullied by girls and by boys and I was pretty strong and resilient kid and had all my own interests and I had my cousins and some other friends around the place but there's just something different about really feeling like you've got a true friend like it just feels different my first best friend her name was Jess we were quite close and then formed more friends as I got older so definitely in year 9 10 11 12 I had friends that made life more fun you know having like sleepovers and doing fun things together and I feel like I missed out on that in primary school I didn't have that in primary school being queer and being young was really hard if you spoke up about it you just didn't want too many people to know but at the same time people would use those slurs against me anyway before I even had a chance to vocalize it so I think I was being teased based on my appearance and my behaviors before I even had a chance to control it or have any kind of agency about my own personal life but I did yeah there was a girl who shaved her head and I thought that was like a big beacon so somehow we ended up at a party together and yeah so that was my first queer experience as a teenager uh, when I finished high school I actually surprisingly finished about top 10 in the school which shocked a lot of people <laughs> so I got a pretty good result and I also got a, uh, a scholarship to study business at Monash University but I didn't take it up I think I did enroll actually I went to a couple of classes but I just found it incredibly boring uh, but maybe it was more like where I was at at the time I just wanted to be out there experiencing life not doing more study, especially not studying maths, <laughs> macroeconomics and microeconomics. So I knocked that back. I feel like I had a few months off. You know, my parents bought me a little Suzuki Sierra when I turned 18. It was this tiny little Jeep. It was cute, but got my driver's license on my 18th birthday. And that just felt like a whole new chapter when I turned 18. Like I finally had independence and freedom and I could do what I wanted. And there was nothing more exciting than that. And I pretty much moved away from Frankston shortly after that because I had the wheels and I'm glad that I did because it was a really rough place actually there was often lots of fights and even my background I had to sometimes defend myself in some of these fights so the moment I moved it sort of really reduced the level of violence in my life as well because I was able to have more control over who I hung out with and the types of spaces and not just be stuck in a town that seemed to have a lot of that going on and part of me, looking back now, I realise if I hadn't gotten out 
my life would have just become so much worse. Like something bad would have happened or Mm. I just wasn't happy. And so when I left, it was total happiness. I moved to East St Kilda. So I used to go to the drag king club called King Victoria. It used to be at the Star Hotel, which I think changed hands. I don't know what it's called now. It's probably just actually a private house now. But it used to be a hotel on Hoddle Street. And there was a drag king club. And every Friday after work, this is before I moved, me and my friend would drive up on a Friday night and just sleep in the car afterwards. But it was access to a queer space and it was super fun. And the person that ran that club lived in East St Kilda and she was moving out of her apartment. So we took it over uh, and it was a two bedroom small apartment in um, Balaclava and the rent was really cheap. I can't remember. I think it was like $85 each a week. <laughs> that period of time when I didn't go to uni, I was applying for different jobs. And I was remembering the other day how you used to have to apply for jobs. You actually had to print out your letter, print out your CV and mail it and hope that you got a call or a response letter. And anyway, I got, so I would just print out heaps of applications and apply for all sorts of jobs. And I got this job in Moorabbin at a company that sold fuses and circuit protection. And I had a bit of experience in that space because I also did a bit of casual work for my dad's company, which is a telecommunications company. So I had been a cable hauler and done wiring and telephone systems. So I had some knowledge of electricity. So I got a job in the warehouse there. So I worked there for a few years and I moved my way up from managing the warehouse. Eventually I became general manager of the company and it was a multi-million dollar company by age 22. So I worked really hard and therefore I was able to kind of move out early. I mean, when I started the job, I don't think the pay was very much. I feel like I was earning about $21,000 a year, but after a few years, it was a lot more than that. <laughs> I probably equivalent to today, I still probably don't earn as much <laughs> as what the pay was back then as general manager. I'm a, I'm a hard worker. I have a good work ethic, but potentially also work has been a coping mes- mechanism maybe as well. But I feel good when I excel. I get a sense of pride and quality is important to me. I, even though I had said when I was young that I was a boy and had all those feelings and vocalised it because it was never affirmed and I was probably shamed for it and made to feel like it was a weird thing. I would, I just repressed it and thought it must be a weird thing. And also I had never met a trans man before. The only trans representation that I felt like I had was on TV with Carlotta, maybe one other person, I don't know. I'm really trying to rack my brain now because that's how limited the options were. And it was certainly a highly stigmatized space that I feel like was connected to uh, a group of people being overly sexualized and exploited. The connection around it was more trans women as well and not trans men and people generally didn't speak very well of trans people back then and didn't speak well towards gay people either it was just a really homophobic period and when I met I met a trans man and it kind of just blew my world apart really I remember his name was David he had medically affirmed his gender so it was an interesting experience to be meeting and it wasn't the only person there was another person as well so I had met people who had not only taken hormone therapy but also had had surgeries like chest reconstruction surgery and I just had no idea that any of that was possible. I just enjoyed being in that community space where there was that level of exploration and language being shaped around what gender was. Uh, By the time I was about 22, I left the job that I had and I sold my car and I sold everything and I bought 
a one-way ticket and I went overseas to try and discover more. Like I felt like I needed to make the decision to transition, to live as a man, but I didn't feel like I had enough information or had witnessed firsthand what life could be like for someone because I'd only met a couple of people in fleeting moments. So I travelled the world and I had a friend that lived in Edinburgh. So I went and stayed there and I got a job uh, in the gay cafe just washing dishes. And on my like second shift, it was a Friday night, I caught the bus home. The bus didn't take me all the way home though. I was still learning the bus routes and sometimes the later ones didn't take you all the way home. And I walked and two blokes walked past me and then they just, I think they just maybe thought I was a feminine man or something. I don't really know what was going on, Um, but they just attacked me. They just beat the shit out of me. And it was an absolutely horrible experience and I ran away. And it was only two doors up from the police station. I realised I'd run right past the police station because I had gone in to report it the next day. It just made me feel so unsafe to be in Edinburgh after that. I lasted two weeks and I caught the bus down to Leeds. Travelling is a really good experience to listen to. Are you putting yourself through something for the hell of it or should you just take action to make yourself feel more comfortable? So I took action to uh, feel safer and more comfortable and I left. And my cousin was living in Leeds and we went there and I went shopping and, you know, she took me out for a night. I needed that time for me to recover and kind of get my bearings back. And then I was online researching like what's going on around Europe and I found this festival that was on and it started in two days and it was in Berlin and it was a drag king festival so I was like I have to be there so I booked a flight I think it was out of like Stansted airport or something to Berlin and I had to try and leg it there the next day or something and then I caught a bus so I had this interesting journey of like just getting myself to Berlin when I was at the airport in Stansted or wherever the airport was I walked past a group of people and there was a a woman there and she like really obviously was checking me out (laughs) and I think there were a group of queers I was like getting that queer vibe and (laughs) that level of attention and on the plane when I walked past their group to go to the toilet on the way back one of them like did that like classic thing of handing me a napkin. <laughs> so I, I went down and opened up the napkin and it said, come to, oh, I can't even remember the name of the club. I wish I did. I think it was like the Bastard Club or something um, tonight at seven o'clock. And I thought, well, I can't because I'm going to this drinking festival. So I walked up to introduce myself and to tell them, I'd like to come, I'm sorry, but I can't because I'm going to this drinking festival. And they were American. They said, that's us, babe. <laughs> And they they were like the Chicago Kings and it was like four days of festival partying and meeting lots of interesting people. So meeting lots of trans men, meeting queer femmes, meeting lots of drag kings, trans men that were also doing still drag kings. So there were an Irish troupe of kings, a group of kings from Chicago and a group of Berlin kings. They put on like four days of partying and I made friends and sort of toured the town and went to clubs and just you know just checking everything out for that experience and I was just I was just was like following along wherever the fun was going and it was yeah it was super fun and eye-opening and I I miss that experience of feeling like wide-eyed and this is amazing now I'm a bit older I feel like it's harder to get that because you've sort of been around the block a few times but there's nothing more exciting than just being in awe and amazed and meeting so many people. And I, the group went to someone's house. I think they were having a, like a little party and I was, I met a, a new best friend 
there. Her name was Kirby and we've been friends for like 17 years or something now and I actually just saw her recently because I went to America um, and we went camping through like Yosemite and everything. But we've travelled to like five countries together now. So that was a great friendship to make and because she was going to be in Amsterdam after Berlin, then I went to Amsterdam and I stayed with another friend that I'd met with before and got to know their housemates and one of their housemates was a trans man. So there was one time I woke up in the morning and we were just having coffee and it was a really important conversation that I needed to have and I'm really appreciative that he spent the time talking to me but it was me trying to test the fears that I had about what would my life be like and the sense that I got from him was that he was a really content happy person that did not regret any of the decisions and seemed really emotionally balanced and focused and all of these things that you just want to be as a healthy adult and that's when the penny dropped for me that I needed to do it so uh, I wrote letters back to uh, my friends to explain that I would be doing this so that I didn't have to come back and have all these conversations in person but when I returned I was I must have caught some flu I, I didn't have a home because I had just returned so I went back to my parents house to recover and I told my mum she, I remember she was sitting next to me in the bed and I, I told her that um, I want to live as a man and I'm, I'm going to, you know, have surgery and, you know, change the way I look. And we both cried. She held my hand and said, uh, to me, you'll always be my little girl, but I know deep down inside you're a boy. And she said, do whatever you need to do when you think of your parents, think they'll get over it. You know, so she gave me her blessing and it was, we both cried and I felt a huge sense of relief because if I didn't have family support, if I felt rejected by my family, I couldn't actually think of anything worse and it would have exacerbated all the fears and I think it would have meant that I didn't have a safe place to come back to when I needed to. So they have been incredibly supportive, which has been interesting considering when I was young I vocalized it but as a parent myself now I realize that they were younger than I am now when I was speaking about it and that like my mum had me when she was 22 so that's not very old and they've had a fairly limited standard traditional life for that time you know get married she got married when she was 18 and they've just focused on buying their own home and having a family really uh, so they've got limited experience and knowledge and understanding and there was no education or positive representation. I, I'm not angry at them. They were doing their best. But they have been very supportive since as an adult I've affirmed myself. So that's been really important to me. Now, and now I realise our family are quite strong and have overcome our own kind of challenges and histories because every family has its rocky path, I think. But our family are very much staunchly defenders of each other. <laughs> You know, that everyone just wants everyone to be happy. So the job that I'm in now, I see how important family support is. It can actually just completely change someone's life. It's like if you're at a crossroads, you would go down the path of family support. Your chances of having a better life are hugely increased. If you don't have family support or you have worse like family rejection where people are saying things to demean you or demoralise or dehumanise you or to make you feel repressed or less than or anything else that could be 
a form of abuse or violence or neglect, that is just too hard. It, 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 it makes life harder for people. And I know that the research speaks to that. And so, yeah, now that I'm the CEO of Transcend, it means that I can bring my, my personal experience to helping other families support their kids but also my professional experience in this space as well. What feels particularly good about being a CEO is that I did go back to uni when I was 30, when my kids were born as well. I've got twins, they're 10, and I studied youth work. So I knew that I wanted to do something important and I aligned my activism and community organising with a skill. I wanted to learn about how to do work with young people. So that's nice that I've come into this professional role of working with young people and their families. But prior to working with young people and families in this current role, I worked in the adult health space. So um, a lot of work around sexual health, HIV prevention, um, alcohol and other drugs, um, therapeutic groups, running programs, community engagement, managing different aspects of particularly trans health. In the adult space, it's very difficult because I'm working often with like a traumatised community a community that faces disproportionate levels of harassment, violence, unemployment, um, at barriers to accessing quality health care. The health outcomes compared to the general population are fairly poor. It's We've conducted research um, on different projects. Uh, one in two trans people have reported experiencing sexual violence, which is a lot higher than even the general population. There's poor rates of anxiety, high rates of suicidality. So what I'm trying to share is that this is a community that isn't inherently sick, like, uh, or not coping because of being trans. It's because of the external factors and the environment and the way that people are treated and the systems are, are too complex and not accessible enough. So people are often left having to do so much work themselves that a regular person doesn't have to do with very little resources as well. So the work uh, in the adult space is really, really challenging. And I felt like I was starting to burn out a bit from the trauma that occurs in the community and then also the lateral violence and the lateral hostility. So when I saw the opportunity to work with families, so parents and carers or guardians or, or blended families and their trans and gender diverse non-binary kids, I felt like I could make a difference as an early intervention and a preventative kind of model so that in 10, 20, 30 years time, our community are faring better because we've been able to provide them with support early on. So Transcend does amazing work to support hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of families every year across Australia when their kids disclose or share that they feel like they could be trans or gender diverse. And so, yeah, it's really fulfilling work. People have access to more information now. So with the internet coming into our lives uh, and a diverse media platform with local community radio or even different streaming services now it's sort of shaken up what was the traditional way to get media into your lives media and information and education and because we're able to process that so quickly now i think that that's yeah i mean it's not just me that thinks this there's there's research and because of the rapid processing of information and sharing stories and increasing the number of positive role models it has supported society to understand this better and that's resulted in shifting attitudes and greater acceptance there's still a lot 
more to do. Some narratives, there's a lot of anti-trans narratives out there and there's a lot of people that would like to see us not exist. So there's still some significant work that needs to occur. But I do believe that general society, if uh, people were to meet a trans person at, at a barbecue or a regular event, I think generally people are friendly to chat to and wouldn't want to see harm caused to you. But unfortunately, we live in a world where messages are manipulated and there's a lot of bias in media and there's particular agendas connected to money and power and they want to influence and manipulate these messages to hold on to their power. It's seen as a tactic to divide communities and recent times we've seen trans people be subjected to those tactics. But I was really glad to see some of those tactics fail in this year's federal election. So I'm hoping that uh, that message goes back to anyone who might be using trans people as a weapon to gain political power that the general community across Australia will not stand for it. Last 10 years, I guess, I lived in inner, the inner west of Melbourne. That's where we started a, a family and the kids went to primary school and had local community and local friends. But I found that as my work became more intense, and the work is really hard, I needed to self-care more. And so the way that I look after myself and keep a balanced life is to get access to the country and the bush. So I love to go camping in my swag and have a fire or, or be fishing or just spending time with friends in nature. And I found that I noticed I was trying to do that as much as possible. Uh, then we went into the pandemic with intense lockdowns in Melbourne, which I found incredibly difficult and it wasn't a sustainable way to live probably for anyone, but particularly with such a, a difficult job where there's high level of trauma experience in my work. So my partner and I, we, we had been talking about wanting to move to the country for a number of years it was sort of like our dream and him and I and the kids were all at home throughout the pandemic and thought we don't know how long this is going to go on for uh we could be in this state of in and out of lockdowns for many years to come or life could be significantly altered forever because of COVID which I do believe is the case we thought let's do it now so we just made it happen we worked really hard and pulled it together and were able to buy a house and we chose Castle Maine because it's one of the places I do come to. I was coming to a lot because I've got friends here. I really like how it has everything that I experienced out of Melbourne life. So it's got a queer community, it's got an arts community, it's got a live music scene. It's it's a beautiful historic town with amazing buildings and gardens and close to nature. So I get everything in this small kind of like intentional way, smaller scales. And we have, you know, land where we can garden and do all those sorts of nice things and relocated the kids and, and their mum moved too and she lives nearby. So that's how we ended up here only nearly a year ago. And none of us regret it, I think. We're really glad to be living here. If anyone is listening and feels like they've got some questions or a bit of a journey for themselves to explore, regarding their own gender and gender identity is to confront it. it but in your own way in your own time it's okay it is scary it does feel scary to explore and and also it's a very vulnerable experience that isn't necessarily private all the time 
particularly if you want to make some changes to your life, you kind of then, if you want to change the way that you look, like people see the way that you look. And if you want people to respect your change of pronoun or a change of name, like it involves communication with people and them needing to respect you and you're worried that people won't. But in my experience, it was it was worth it. And people do. There's lots of good people out there that are very supportive. And my biggest learning is that if people aren't you sort of have to leave them where they are I've always just interpreted it as though they miss out on me (laughs) you know because you've only got one life and it is short and you want to be able to live your authentic life so that you feel really comfortable in your own body and your own experience and there are support groups and health professionals if you if you need health professionals of any kind if that's the route that people go down but there's no cookie cutter process it's not one size fits all it's very unique and individual for people Uh, and there's no pressure to jump from one thing into another thing that you still feel like you have to conform to and I don't I don't regret it at all Uh, and for some it's a continual process so if people are questioning their their gender identity or their sexuality or anything how exciting you know, you want to be like con- connected to how you feel and find out about who you are and experiment with all sorts of things because it is exciting in life to be doing that. But if you learn something about yourself and how you relate to yourself, but also to others and how they relate to you, then you have lots of control and agency over that and you'll have more enriching experiences and deeper connections and relationships. And there's not really anything to be afraid of. Surround yourself with good people. Be grateful for yourself and uh, be grateful for the people around that nourish you and respect you and be kind to people and hang out with people who are kind to you. This project was made possible with the financial assistance of Victoria's Pride Regional Activation Program and Midsummer Festival and with the support of the Mount Alexander Shire Council, the Mount Alexander Shire LGBTIQA Plus Steering Group and the Queer and Now Radio Program on Main FM 94.9. This podcast has been produced by the Queer and Now team Shireen Clough and Amalia O'Hara at Main FM 94.9. Editing and original music by Amy Chapman. A big thank you to all participants for sharing their stories with such a wonderful generosity of spirit. If anything within this episode has been upsetting for you, please reach out and call the dedicated LGBTIQA plus helpline switchboard on 1800 184 527 or Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Kids Helpline 1800 55 1800.